Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Revelation. Let's jump in here. <clears throat> we missed a week, um, or I did, so we're, 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 uh, we're back in Revelation after a, a week break there. And so l- let's just, we're, we're in chapter 8 now, let's do some very quick review. Just a reminder, okay, if we go back to the beginning, chapters 1 through 3, remember, letters to the churches. This gives us somewhat of an overview of church history. I think we saw that in there, but also a relevant uh, and descriptive uh, overview of of the church age today, especially there towards the end in the church of Laodicea. We are in the church age, um, which is now characterized by grace and a regathering of the Jews is happening in accordance with Scripture, while also we should anticipate a falling away that occurs. And, and there's some debate over where exactly is the falling away. Is it like right before the tribulation? Is it in the tribulation? Um, I, think it's, I think it's kind of we see a falling away as we approach the time of the tribulation, and we'll continue to see that even during the tribulation. It's quite appalling what we'll see tonight if we make it there um, to, to see what we see unfold here in the trumpet judgments. And to then see, even at the end of chapter 9, that there are still people who just are intent on idolatry and refuse to repent. And so I think we're going to see this all the way through. Uh, I think that's sadly the condition of the human heart. We know that. And, um, and so then we see uh, the, the rapture and the tribulation as chapter 4 comes in. So in chapter 4, John is in the Spirit. He's invited through an open door into the throne room of heaven where he sees the throne room at the time of the rapture and, uh, and following. And so uh, I think there in chapter 4, we have great evidence of the presence of the church prior to chapter 4, um, the presence of the church on earth. And then as John goes up into heaven in chapter 4, I think that aligns well with the rapture and then the time of the tribulation, the church being there in the throne room of heaven for a period of seven years. And, um, and so I do think Revelation supports a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. And then in chapters 5 and 6, the Lamb takes the scroll and begins to open the seals, the first six of seven total. Uh, from the uh, from the Antichrist, and so as we see those seals open, we see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We see evidence of the Antichrist and supposed world peace. We see war, famine, death, pestilence. We begin to see terrible things unleashed upon the earth, which then really brings us up to chapter seven, which we've considered already. It's our most recent study in the book of Revelation, and chapter seven touches on the sealed of Israel and the martyrs from the time of the tribulation. If you recall there in chapter 7, at the beginning we saw 144,000 of the tribes of Israel who are marked, they are sealed, and thereby, because of this, they're protected from the events that are coming upon the earth. And these 144,000 will serve as, as Jewish Christian evangelists. And so they are going to be active 
during the time of the tribulation, they're going to be telling people, they're marked, they're sealed, they're protected. And so there's going to be this witness. And so they are used to bring about what is arguably, there in the midst of the tribulation, the greatest revival in history as we see it lead to an innumerable number of those who are saved and then some even martyred for their faith. And so we considered last time this question of will souls be saved during the tribulation. Um, many, what I would say, are, are uh, more on the conservative, um, but very much... Um, uh, my mind's going to be doing this tonight. What's the word I'm looking for? Um, there's a consensus amongst many of them, many leading scholars who would say, yes, it would seem that, uh, that we would see millions uh, potentially saved during this time. And so we know that at least the 144,000 Jews are, are, are sealed for service. They're serving as a witness, but there will be others as well, especially those we considered last time that are you know, left behind uh, after the rapture, but they're ones who were in church. They know, they have an awareness of things, and they very quickly understand and know this is what's happened, and hopefully such people would say, man, I'm, I'm now, I wish I'd have done it sooner, but I'm surrendering my life to Christ now. Um, and, and this is what we continue to see, and we'll see it even here in 8 and 9, is just, and I prayed about this, like we've got to be able to see in Revelation, as hard as it is, and as much as some people would look at Revelation and go, see, this is a God of judgment. Well, yes, we are seeing God's judgment um, here in Revelation. But over and over and over again, and we'll see this here tonight, His judgment is so specific and even restricted and, and I believe that this is continued evidence, not only, yes, of his sovereignty, but of his desire that people would see and, and would repent. This is what God desires. Our God is a soul-saving God who has all of humanity on his heart. I, listen, and there are people I understand that would disagree with me, but I think it is absolutely a lie from the pit of hell that our God would create some for damnation. That's not who He is. And, and I think this is truly evident here in Revelation 7, 8, and 9. And we know that chapter 7 was an interlude, right? It was a parenthetical chapter. It sort of takes a step back. It falls between the 6th and the 7th seal. Remember, as far as the judgments are concerned, they go in a sequential order, but uh, as far as the seals are concerned, you have 6, and then on the 7th seal... The seventh seal opens up to seven trumpets. And we'll go through the trumpets, the trumpet judgments, and angels are blowing the trumpets as these judgments are released. They go through six judgments, and then on the seventh trumpet, then that opens up the next phase of, of judgment that comes, the bowls that will be empty, the bowls of his wrath. And so this is kind of how they build. And so chapter seven was in between those seals. So the first six seals have been broken in chapter six. And those 144,000, they're sealed, they're set apart, they're used by God. And, and what I want us to understand is um, what God determines to do, he does it, right? What we see happening in Revelation is, is God has a plan. So even, even now in the midst of, and listen, personal testimony without a whole lot of detail, like, there is so much right now that I find myself going, Lord, I want to understand the plan. <laughs> I want to know 
what you have planned. And so many things right now in my life, so many things, and this is not to suggest chaos or anything, it's just the reality of just multiple different things. I find myself sitting here going, Lord, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But I do know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't because I want to be doing something. And God's just like, you just need to sit and trust me and know that I have a plan. And then I want to be like, well, Lord, I have a plan. <laughs> I have a good one. Right? Can we do this? You know? Um, I get into trouble a lot that way. And we got to remember, like, God, what God determines to do, He does it. And what, and, and, and what or who He seals, He keeps. And these 144,000, they're marked by the living God and they're going to endure this difficult time and they will be victorious. And there's no element of, of God just going, oh, I'm just going to set a bunch of things loose and, and we'll just kind of see what happens. No, every aspect of his judgment is in order and it is executed perfectly and according to his design. And so I want us too to just kind of be in awe of as we look at this to think, man, our God is in control. He's in control. And he doesn't just suddenly get in control when this time comes. He is right now. And let's take comfort then in the fact that God holds them in this way. So of the 144,000 that are marked during the time of the tribulation, that he then protects and uses for his glory and ensures that he carries them through this time, how much more a child of God today how much more a child of God right now? How much more you right now who have said of your own volition, of your own free will in a time where you know, you're not in the midst of a tribulation. I'm not disparaging these people here. This is again all part of God's design. But, but, but right, He's got you then, right? He's holding you. And He will get you through. He will carry you through. Those who are not appointed for wrath. And so in the midst of our trials or in the midst of those moments when we're like, oh, Lord, I just, I don't know. We can say, but God, I, you do, you know, and you've got this. Right? His very image is born upon you. He's, he's, in, the, he's in the process, literally, right now, he's in the process of continue make, continually making you more like him. We've got to trust and have faith, right? God has you. And so then this parenthetical chapter, as it's called, took us, it takes us deeper for a time, and now we kind of reemerge in chapter 8 with the opening of the seventh seal now, which will then give way to the trumpets. And so it says, chapter 8, verse 1, we're not doing so hot, are we? <clears throat> when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now think of what's unfolded since chapter 1. And consider the throne room of heaven, and, and to this point, it's been a place of constant worship. I mean, John's just been trying to take it all in, all this worship that's been happening, and the angelic beings, and, and them continually offering praise to God, and now there's silence. And, I mean, I, I can remember the last time I taught on this chapter, I think I had everybody be silent for like 10 seconds and it was awkward for some that was 10 seconds right some people can't handle those silent moments and this is a half an hour some people are like he, he's just this is a statement of a, of a general period of time others like no it's a half an hour 
This has to be deafening. Why silence? Well, we, don't, we don't know for sure. We can't say for sure here's why everything was silent in the throne room of heaven at this point. Um, some say this is just simply a dramatic pause. I think there's some truth to that. Others, that this is a time for God to gather up the prayers of his people, as we'll see here in a moment. But it certainly was a pause, and it was a somber moment, and I think to some degree, maybe it was all of these things. I often feel that way, um, because prayers do seem to be sort of captured in this moment and offered up before God. But then also there is this pause because on one hand, what's about to happen is awful. If, if, if everything that's already happened was awful, this is even worse. And so I think to some degree there's a sense of, man, what's, what's going to unfold here, even though it's God's design, this is bad. Nobody wants to see this. God himself I don't think, really wants to see this. And that may be the, that may be the wrong way to describe that in terms of the character of God. And, but but I, I think this grieves him. And, and then what's even happened already, I think, has produced maybe just a sense of, uh, of, of awe and humility. Um, and, and again, we know, I mean, Ezekiel writes of this. Ezekiel the prophet, Ezekiel 33, 10 and 11. Therefore you... O son of man, say to the house of Israel, thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us, and we pine away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That's the heart of God. You think he delights in this? He says, turn. Turn from your evil ways, for why should you die? I, th- I feel like God is very somber in this moment over what must happen. What must happen to, even though the price were already paid, right? Like to say it's right here, it's been there. Just receive it. And so here there's, there's silence as everyone there in the throne room is awaiting what is about to unfold because the other thing is probably at this point they're accustomed to like, okay, a seal is open, something happens, and here now another seal is going to be open. What, what is this, this going to bring? Verses 2 and 3, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. So the hour of God's final judgment begins to arrive. Here we see seven angels. Jewish tradition says that there were always seven angels in the presence of God. And they're given trumpets here. Trumpets that will be used to sound alarm of the judgment to come. And so another angel comes with a golden censer and is given a a bunch of incense. And the angel takes the incense and offers it a sweet-smelling aroma with the prayers of all the saints. Now earlier in chapter 5, we saw the elders pour out the bowls of, of prayers as the lamb took the scroll. Those particular prayers were prayers of God's worthiness. You alone are worthy to take the scroll. Prayers that his kingdom would come. 
as he begins to open the scroll. But here it seems that these prayers are likely those of the martyrs that we saw below the throne who are crying out, How long, O Lord? So it seems as if these prayers are probably gathered and brought before the Lord. Again, in ways where it's like we don't, we don't totally know how all this stuff is like working out in heaven. But it would seem it would be these prayers from the martyrs saying, God, how long? And now as they're coming before him, God effectively answers and says, now, now, now my judgment is going to be poured out. And so what's amazing then as this scene unfolds is that we see that God, it seems, begins to move in response to the cries of his people. We got to understand that about prayer. We don't we don't fully understand how all of it works, but we get little insight here and there. I mentioned in our Q&A week before last, we were talking about prayer. And I'm always interested in Daniel chapter 10 when Daniel prays and he's praying and he's praying and he's praying and there all of a sudden he's on the edge of the river and, and an angel of the Lord comes and he comes to him and he says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but basically, hey, look, from the day you started praying, I was dispatched. I was on my way. But for almost 23 23 days, I think it says, he says it was held up. It says that he was held up with the prince of Persia. There was a spiritual battle going on. And so this angel, in effect, says, hey, sorry, I'm a little late. (laughs) But you know what's so cool is we see with Daniel is he didn't stop praying. And I wonder a little bit, like sometimes, again, we've got, we serve a God who is sovereign who is over all things, who is in charge, who says my will will not be thwarted. But then at the same time, we get, we get insight here in different places where I kind of go, man, what if Daniel had stopped praying? What if Daniel had said, well, I guess God's not going to do anything this time. But the implication is Daniel kept praying and the angel gets there and says, hey man, sorry, but basically I'm glad you were praying because there was a battle going on. And I think, oh, God, if we could see that sometimes. And, 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 and goodness, that's my own heart, right? Wanting to see it like I know it. His word declares it. And so we got to trust, man, there is a battle going on. And so we might pray. It does something. And, and then here again in, in Revelation 8, the prayers come before God, the prayers of how long, O oh Lord? And, and, and then now God starts to move. He starts to act. And so in a way where the prayers of a, of, a, of a people mix with the sovereignty of a good, perfect creator God to create action, I, d- I don't know how that works, but I see it here. And so what happens then in verses 4 through 6 in the smoke of the incense <clears throat> with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And so we see here that prayers, offering, worship are received. And and again, I don't mean to overstate it, but in a way that we don't fully understand, they combine and serve to prompt the action that's then taken. So the angel who recognizes then that the prayers are now heard takes of the fire of the altar and throws it to earth, which causes this eruption of noises, of thundering, of lightning, of an earthquake. And, And so here 
we need to just see again how all of this is working together in the throne room of heaven to see the power of the prayer of God's people. And then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepare themselves to sound. Now the seal judgments of chapter 6 caused destruction to a quarter of the earth. So we need to understand now after those judgments happen, we basically, you know, split the earth into quarters and just assume one quarter of it is pretty well decimated at this point. And now with the trumpets, a third of the three quarters remaining is going to be destroyed. Okay, so again, we read this stuff in a book and to maybe the best of our abilities. And as we pray, we ask the Lord to give us a heart that understands, give us eyes to see as he sees, to give us his heart but it's hard, right? It's hard because we're going to sit here tonight and you're, you're going to go home and do your bedtime routine and you know, put the Bible aside for a moment. Not a bad thing. And it's just like, whoa. But we got to think as we're reading this stuff, man, I mean, this is a description of what will come, of what is going to happen. Absolute destruction upon this earth and the people that are upon it. And so, the first trumpet, verse 7, the first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So the first trumpet is blown, and hail and fire, mingled with blood, come upon the earth. Um, This is reminiscent, by the way, all of this, Really, as we see the trumpet judgments are reminiscent of the plagues in Egypt, we see very clear parallels with them. And uh, like, for example, Exodus 9, verses 23 through 26, and Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground, and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And so there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And so we've seen things like this before. And now remember, as these things start to unfold on the earth, remember, the world during this time has already been in a drought from the seal judgments. And now this happens, and a third of the trees and all of the grass is burned up. What's the impact of this? Because this isn't just about like, whoa, this is a terrible scene in a movie. No, like people are going to have to continue to live. Oxygen, food, grain, shade. Right? It is impossible quite frankly, for us to understand fully the suffering that will ensue upon the earth during this time. This is why Jesus says it will be like nothing the world has ever seen before. Verse 8, Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So he says something like a great mountain burning with fire. Many think this is like a giant asteroid-like thing that hurls toward the earth, and that's probably, I mean, that may exactly be what it is. And um, it makes impact, right, which is 
And, and so with that is it makes impact in the sea. It creates such a disruption, something that large we know, um, albeit they're movies. We've seen enough movies that have some scientific accuracy to them where like if something the size of a giant mountain on fire hits the earth, it's going to cause a problem. And, and so it creates such a disruption in the sea that a third of the sea creatures die. Um, is it their death that creates the, the blood-like water uh, along with the ships maybe that are being destroyed? Maybe, maybe not. We, we've seen, of course, in the plagues of Egypt as well that the, the, the water was similarly turned uh, to blood. And so it's probably the case, in my opinion, that between the destruction of the sea creatures and the ships that, yes, the water is just going to be um, absolutely... Uh, Water can be destroyed, turned. Um, and so then we go into the third trumpet, verse 10 and 11. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers. So now we were, we were in the sea, but now we're the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter probably heard of wormwood before a poison again a parallel to the plagues of egypt uh, in exodus or even even in this case kind of the reverse of what we saw with the israelites in exodus 15 and exodus 15 23 through 25 says now when they came to mara they could not drink the waters of mara for they were bitter therefore the name of it was called mara and the people complained against moses saying what shall we drink and so he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. Right? So there was God's provision for his people, but in this case, the waters are made bitter. And this is their drinking water. This is their fresh water source. So I don't want to belabor this point, but we must be in tune with the suffering here. Because we said there was drought. Now there's no food. Now there's, no, uh, there's the, the oxygen, the, 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 the process of, of, of uh, what's it called? struggling tonight say it again thank you photosynthesis Woo, good job um you know that's that's hindered now the shade the sun is just beating upon the earth and the sea is now disrupted um shipping whatever was still happening there and, and now our water sources and this is getting bad Now a third of the drinking water is destroyed. And notice here, though, and this is what I want us to understand, like in all of this, the scope is significant, but it is still limited. I mean, look how precise. So John here is, he has done his best and will continue to do his best to record and capture the various things that he sees, in some cases saying it's like this or it's like that. But he's speaking with very clear confidence with every one of these judgments, that it was, it was a third. And then it was a third. And so it gives us the sense that, once again, God's judgment is not just haphazard. It's not just we're going to unleash some things and see what happens. It's very specific. So yes, it's great in scope, but at the same time also limited. There's boundaries on it. God is in control. And this idea is going to build as we get into chapter 9. As we see the fourth trumpet, verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. 
this uh, this harkens back to the ninth plague in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 10. Um, but also just that, you know, this particular trumpet and where it's placed here uh, towards the end of, of chapter 8, almost to me sort of reinforces here that there's just like a, there's a darkness to this time, especially with what's about to come. Um, Matthew 24, verse 29, Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And this darkness that comes at this point beyond what, you know, some people look at this and they say, okay, well, if we're saying that, you know, like a, a third of the moon was just suddenly like hacked off or whatever. Like we know that the moon and, and the sun, the moon in particular, the the role that it plays in our tides and how uh, things function on earth. Like this is, this is going to, all of this cosmological stuff that's happening is going to have very real effects on the earth, but then also just create a sort of, of darkness. Now, some of you love a, a, a cloudy, rainy day, maybe especially if you're looking for a nap. I think there's some good naps to be had on those days. But other days, like especially if you're dealing with some hard stuff, I don't know if you're like me, the cloudy day doesn't make it better. For me, when I'm dealing with something heavy, the sunshine is like, oh, okay. And, and I think that's biblical. It's not saying like I'm right, but I mean, we, light and darkness, we can do a study on that, right? And so I think to the darkness at this time, it just, it, it's got to be an, an ominous foreshadow, quite frankly, of the demonic activity that's about to come. And that's crazy too, because you think, well, hasn't this already been really hard? And yeah, it has. But this has been sort of heavenly enacted judgment that has sort of been material in nature. What comes next is still under the control of heaven, but it's through demonic powers. And so I think this, again, this darkness speaks of what's about to come. And so here then a people just devastated, truly. And a third of the earth, essentially, at this point, a third of the, of the three quarters that was left is destroyed. And, and I... And I think when we look at this, because I mentioned already, you got with the the, the first four uh, trumpets, they're more kind of material in nature. It should cause us to think, like, what of those who have trusted in the things of the earth, in the things of this world? And look, like as far as creation is concerned, I, I do believe that there is a biblical mandate for us to steward this planet and creation well, okay? Um, I, I do do some things when it comes to like, hey, let's take care of this planet. Um, I am for that. But then, of course, um, we also then see really where the pendulum swings so much, right? To where people are so focused on efforts to care for everything about the planet, even at the expense of a people, or certainly of their own salvation, and just the foolishness, right? Because what we see then here is it's all going to be dis- it's going to be destroyed. Now God's going to do a miraculous work of ushering in a new heaven and a new earth, 
And despite what Peter says, and often kind of taken out of context, it's not that the whole thing's going to burn per se, like we often want to say. God's going to do an incredible work in restoring it. But here in Grant Osborne, I think, captures this well. He says, God wants to make his omnipotence known to the world and to show the futility of turning against him. Each of these judgments, the first four trumpets, addresses a different aspect of life in the ancient world and in the modern world as well, he says. The first shows that the material world is no answer. The second and third address the sea trade, including food supplies. And the fourth focuses on life itself and the heat and light of the celestial bodies. The four together prove that those who live only for this world have chosen foolishly. For only in God is there true life. Earthly things turn on us, and we dare not depend on them. And we've got to take that seriously and consider those things, right? So then John writes in verse 13, And I looked, and I heard an angel flying. And this is where, again, very ominous. I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. So what we know is that the people who are on earth, and and when it says here um, to the inhabitants of, of the earth, this is referring to those who have rejected Christ. And what they're hearing is, woe, woe, woe. And basically, there's more coming. There's more coming. Now, why do this? Again, we've got to think about this in terms of the character of God. Do we serve a God who's like, watch, now I'm going to really just mm, put my thumb on him? No. When you have, and this is, I get to some degree, it seems a oxymoron, but when a civilized nation is engaged in battle and going into an area where they don't want people to be hurt, what do they do? They give a warning. Heads up. This stuff is coming, right? Not the exact same thing here, but God continually providing warning. Why did he limit the judgment to this point? Why didn't he just wipe it out? Why did he restrict it at a third and a third and a third and a third? And then send a warning so that people would repent. I firmly believe this. So that people would repent. When people ask that question, and they do, and, it's, and, it, and it comes from a place of hurt and brokenness, but when people ask that question to, in effect, defend their own rejection of God, and they say, how can a loving God send, insert the blank, to hell? We simply need to point them to the Scriptures and say, you clearly don't know the God that you're seeking to describe. He is a loving God. He wants to send no one to hell. But only those who will continually reject Him. Revelation chapter 9. Hey, we're doing okay, guys. Then the fifth angel sounded. So now, again, there was a special announcement for the next three. Okay? Okay? 
So we've got the fifth and the sixth that we'll see. And then again, following the same pattern, the seventh will give way to a new round of judgments. So the fifth angel sounded, trumpets blown, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Now we've read something similar to this before, but this time it's a little bit different. To this point in chapter 6, as well as in chapter 8, we've seen stars or we've seen matter like stars falling from heaven, ecological, cosmic disasters that act as God's judgment on the earth. But here at the opening of chapter 9, when the fifth angel here sounds the trumpet, the first of the three woes now is referenced from the previous chapter, and we see this star falling from heaven to the earth. But it's important to understand here, not only this first part, but then the second part of verse 1 that says, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. This, this, the tense here in the original language of a star fallen from heaven, excuse me, is in the perfect um, participle tense. And so what that means then is that this is an act in the past. So what he's saying here is that I saw a star that had fallen from heaven. And then we see that to him was given the key to the bottomless pit so who is this star? Satan, right? It's not an actual star. This is probably a, this is the he here. This is Satan, right? Luke chapter 10, verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isaiah 14, 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. And so we see here then that this is Satan, I believe, and many would agree. And Satan is given a key here. There's some importance to understand in this. One, you may say, well, man, why is he being given a key? Well, because yes, God does use evil forces in his judgment. Okay? So what we have to understand, is he the author of it? Did he create it? No but he will use it in judgment. Secondly, and a lot of people get uncomfortable with such a statement. It was Martin Luther who said it first, and he was very good at making people uncomfortable, that he said, there is a devil, but he's God's devil. And that's where people go, oh, God's devil, I don't like that. Look at it a different way. God has control. Oh, the devil who likes to think that he's got this sweet place that everybody can just go hang out and have a party for all of eternity. Well, he doesn't even have a key. He had to be given a key, right? I mean, this is the way we have to look at this. So when we find ourselves in fear, again, going back to the beginning of the message tonight, remember, as much as we see here all these horrific events, we can still trust God's in control. He's in control. And so though Satan is given a key, he is not in control of hell. In fact, remember, he's a resident like everyone else there. Okay? And he will be tormented for eternity. And so he's given a key to the, um, also translated the abyss or the abuso in the original language. And this is a place of prison for the demons. And he immediately opens it. He's been chomping at the bit for this moment. And so he opened, verse 2, the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. And so the sun and, their, and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And so he opens this pit, and as he opens the pit, and the smoke fills the air and darkens the light, 
and, and this really, so again, there's already been darkness. There wasn't much light that they were dealing with left because of the fourth trumpet. And so now even more so, this is a world that's growing dim. And, uh, and so then what we see come out of the pit, verse 3 through 5, then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power, given power, okay? It was given to them as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing, which, by the way, is what locusts typically go after, right? Or any tree, but only those men. So now they're going after humans, not vegetation, but note the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So I want you to understand, woven throughout this is explicit. God is in control. He has power over these things. Yes, he's unleashing judgment, but the judgment is only to the extent that he allows. He's given authority and power for such judgment. And to those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, they will be attacked. But to those who do, to those who he has said, I will seal you, he protects them through this time. Verse 5, And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. So these locusts, and I do, I'm of the opinion that they are a locust-like creature. Um, we'll see more of a description of them, so they're certainly not like the locusts that we're uh, familiar with today, but some similarities. Locusts, we know, are a tool of God's judgment. They have been uh, throughout history, or at least certainly in biblical history. We see them consistently used in the Old Testament. Um, and uh, just like we saw in the earlier parallels with the trumpets and the plagues in Egypt. Um, and so these, again, are lo locusts, sort of. Um, and these are different, certainly, than anything we have ever seen. Um, but normal locusts, right, just to give... Anybody familiar with locusts? Okay, we've got a couple, all right. Um, I always find this excerpt interesting. It's a Time Magazine article that wrote about locusts in the 1800s. It said, Sweeping across North America, flying hordes of Rocky Mountain locusts were once an awesome and horrifying sight. Huge glittering clouds of insects laying waste countless acres of crops. Throughout the 1800s, the warring swarms periodically ravaged farm fields from California east to Minnesota and south to Texas. The locusts were easy to please, eating barley, buckwheat, melons, tobacco, strawberries, spruce, apple trees, even fence posts. Laundry hung out to dry and each other. When women threw blankets over their gardens, the locusts devoured the blankets, then feasted on the plants. Farmers lit fires, blasted shotguns into the swarms, and scoured their fields with so-called hopper dozers, which were large metal scoops smeared with tar or molasses to grab as many of the offenders as possible. But it was all to no avail. In her book, On the Banks of Plum Creek, Laura Ingalls Wilder recalls the horrid feeling of the huge insects clinging to her clothes, writhing and squishing beneath her bare feet, and the sound of millions of jaws biting and chewing as the locusts destroyed her family's wheat fields in Minnesota. In 1875, the species formed the largest recorded locust swarm in the history of humankind, 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide, equaling the combined area of Connecticut, Delaware, Maine, Maryland, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, and Vermont. Thousands of farm families threw in their shovels and gave up. Those are just the insects we know about. 
Here these locusts are not interested in the green they normally devour. Here they are interested in tormenting mankind. These are demonic locusts. For five months they will torment those left on the earth who do not bear the seal of God. Unrepentant individuals will experience torment of demonic locusts, the sting of a scorpion to the extent that they will want to die. But they will not be able to. Verse 6, In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. If we know anything about the human condition, such a situation is beyond comprehension. I don't think we can comprehend the suffering. But again, and I know I'm, I'm restating this, but it's important for us to hear it. Over and over again, we see that God is in control. And God will use the evil things of the world to carry out judgment, but they are under His control. And over and over again, His, res- his restraint has mercy as its motive, desiring that none should perish. He gives the description here, John does, in verses 7 through 11. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair, and their teeth were like lion's teeth, and they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months and they had his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is in Hebrew, Abaddon, but in Greek, he has the name Apollyon. And so this is a crazy description of these demonic beings. Again, John here is saying a word that tips us off. He's saying it's like, he's doing his best to describe it. But I think that he does have an understanding of the things that he's using to describe, right? So um, we can sort of imagine something here to the best of our ability. Now, many people want to say that these things are something else, that perhaps John doesn't know, say, for example, what modern weapons of warfare look like. A lot of times there's theories in Revelation that what he's describing, doing the best that he can. Um, Some people have even suggested that these things are basically like uh, Apache helicopters. Of course, what's a guy like John to do who's living when he lives and hasn't seen anything like this before? And he's like, man, the sound and the look and all this stuff, right? And, I mean, could that be the case? Could he actually be describing what actually is more of like a battle that's coming? Um, He could be. Uh, I don't tend to lean that way. Um, I think that John has a pretty good ability to describe some things. And this is something that's coming out of the bottomless pit. It's demonic in nature. Um, You know, it's under the control of this, uh, of Satan, this king over them whose name is Abaddon. Is translated destroyer, um, and so uh, we don't we don't know. Um, I, again, I'm of the opinion that these are more demonic type creatures, uh, and so we then read verse twelve. One woe is past. <clears throat> um, still, two more woes are coming after these things. All right. So again, just so much, right? Um, But we see, I mean, God is still showing mercy. Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So a command is given to release these angels. The wording itself here is is filled with terror because you rarely hold back something that's good. Okay, So we see this term angel here. 
but I believe these are demonic. They're being held back. And, um, and so there's special ones that are reserved just for this time. Now these angels are connected with the Euphrates River. Euphrates is always as bears significance from the very beginning. It's the landmark of Babylon, of ancient Babylon. It was the frontier of Israel's land as promised by God. It was the boundary of the old Roman Empire. And so here they're kind of held at this space. And then, um, you know, David Guzik points out of the Euphrates, he says it's also associated with the first sin in Genesis 2, first murder, Genesis 4, first organized revolt against God in Genesis 11, the first war in Genesis 14, the first dictatorship, Genesis 10. And so, um, again, just the area that they're bound at speaks of sort of their nature. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. So when they are finished, over half of those on earth will be gone. Half of the world's remaining population following the rapture of the church. And the number, verse 16, of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them, he says. Now, the, the literal translation here is duo myriad myriads which means an innumerable number. Most translations, mine included, say 200 million, um, but it's debated as to maybe the language really just speaks of a number that can't be counted, which 200 million is a pretty, I mean, a pretty good big number to use. A lot of people look at this, and what do you think when you hear 200 million, an army of 200 million? Anybody? China? Okay. It was, I think it was 1965. When China made the claim, we have an army of 200 million. Um, so, of course, people take this, then they go, that's China. We don't know that based off of this. What we know is there is going to be just an absolute horde of horsemen um, that are coming at this time. And I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouths. For their power is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents having heads, and with them they do harm. And so, uh, once again, here we get a description of something we really can't fully comprehend. Um, Again, is John describing instruments of modern warfare? I don't know. He could be. And uh, whatever the case is, he's describing the best he can what he sees in the destruction that will come. And um, uh, the fact that the death that comes from this, I mean, it's just truly unprecedented, so it just speaks again to the horrific time uh, that these people are in. And then verse 20 and 21 but the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, that they should not worship demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. What else do you want to say at this point? Right? 
mean, the depravity of mankind is evidenced here. Christian, if anyone tries to say that there is good in us, there is not. W.A. Criswell, he was the former pastor of First Baptist Dallas. He writes, one of the strangest things about human nature is that man has not changed because of punishment. He may desist from evil because he is afraid, but his heart is still evil. He would do evil if he could get by with it. A man is really changed only by the gospel of the grace of the Son of God. And I don't understand why that needs to be an offensive thing to say. You cannot look at mankind and say that anyone's good. We are desperately wicked. And we're in need of redemption. And here at the end of this chapter, we've yet again an extension of God's mercy and His grace. He holds back from giving us what we deserve and continues to offer us what we don't deserve, forgiveness and eternal life. And yet people reject Him, despite everything that's before them. And so this is why, you know, for many people, and again, we already dealt with this a little bit, but, you know, even in, even in the end, as God ushers in a new heaven and a new earth, and I'm not saying that we need to grow callous to this, but to some degree, this is, you know, when people say, well, man, how can we even be in paradise and heaven and not just totally mourn what's been lost? But I think you get to a place where you have an understanding of how gracious and merciful God has been. And, and again, I don't know how all of that's going to work in terms of, I'm not suggesting that we not be burdened even here as we should be. But it's going to be evident, man, people are, there's certain people that are just intent on rejecting. Right? Those who look at Revelation, I'll end where I began, those who look at Revelation through the lens of vengeance and judgment miss the heart of our Father. To grasp, and listen clearly in this, to grasp the book of Revelation, you must do something radical, yes, but to look at it through the lens of mercy. Revelation is a mercy book. I firmly believe that. He is long-suffering. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? Romans 9.22 What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He desires repentance up until the very end when He finally cuts it off. And so, I'd encourage you tonight as, again, as heavy as some of much of Revelation is, especially uh, 8 and 9. And of course, this, this will continue. But uh, to see here God's mercy, His grace, and also the encouragement for those that know Him, and it's encouragement for those that don't, but for us especially that know Him, to know He's in control. And He is precise. And He is specific. And... Um, and man, 
will bear his name upon us. Amen. We're in good hands. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, get, we thank you, Lord, for our time together tonight. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this word especially. That, Lord, you have given us insight into some of the things of the end times. And I pray, Lord, that it would serve its purpose in encouraging us, in strengthening us, knowing that we serve a sovereign God who is in control, who holds us in his hand, a God who has not appointed us to wrath, but that also, Lord, it would serve its purpose to compel us to tell others of what we have in you. And that, Lord, we would be so motivated by your spirit just to share of who you are. Lord, knowing it's your heart that none would perish, may it be ours as well, Lord. May we be faithful in being used by you, Lord, in doing what you would have us to do in the opportunities we're given, Lord, to tell other people of your love for them so that, Lord, they don't have to experience and endure uh, this suffering. Truly, Lord, it should be a motivation for us. And so, Lord, do that work in our hearts. Give us eyes to see, Lord. Give us your heart. Um, give us a love, Lord, for the lost, we pray. Bless each of these here tonight, Lord, as they follow after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure that you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit our website at ccnortheast.org.